before I read the scripture text, I just want to acknowledge for those on Zoom, I think our internet has been cutting in and out and stopping the video and then restarting it. My apologies. Technical stuff. Internet stuff. Uh, Hopefully it won't happen during the sermon. We'll see. Uh, But our scripture text for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Hear now the word of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you love us enough that you've given us your word so that we could know you. Would you take this word today, Lord? And by your spirit, would you open our hearts to love and to believe what you have to say to us, Lord, even things that are challenging to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Ask your average person on the street, and I think nine out of ten, maybe more, will tell you that cheating on your significant other is wrong. Uh, Whether you're talking about a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, this is not a controversial thing to believe, even in 2021. Now, if that is all that our text today was saying, I think, first of all, it would be a short sermon. But it would also get the approval even of passers-by with basically no knowledge of the Bible whatsoever. But again, we have a situation here, as we saw with the idea of murder, where modern people think they like Jesus until they meet Jesus. Um, They think that they like Jesus until they see what he actually demands of us and what he actually expects of us. Uh, People like the idea of not cheating on someone they're committed to, or at least they like the idea of someone not cheating on them. But what they may not appreciate is that is something that Jesus is doing here. Jesus is doing more than just affirming this bare minimum sexual ethic. Uh, Jesus, as he always does, is getting down to the level of the heart and how we think. What turns the gears of our soul? That's what concerns Jesus, and it's what he focuses on. Uh, here's what makes Jesus unlikable to your average modern person. Modern people enjoy lust, and they think that it's harmless. That's the reality. Um, Once again, you see Jesus here being countercultural. So you have Jesus sort of frustrating this modern approach to these things in his teaching. See, in our culture, the issue of sex is seen as something that's no big deal. Um, The problem, though, is not that the world has a high view of sex. It's that that they have a low view of sex. They don't recognize its power. Um, as, as modern people, more than likely, uh, we maybe even have a tendency to have this low view of human sexuality. The world has so cheapened it that anything can be done with it. And in fact, it doesn't even really have a purpose. The re- world really thinks that it's harmless. 
What does Jesus do? He fundamentally says, you have a problem with cheating? Fine. He says, that's the bare minimum of what people should do. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. But then he pushes deeper. He says, all these things are connected. They're not just cheap. They're not just biological. They run from the head of the person, through the heart of the person, and through your life and how you live. It's all connected. Um, Think about what Jesus challenges his listeners with here. He says, how's your thought life? No one wants to be asked that. (laughs) But he challenges us with that. He says, how is your thought life? How do you think about the people who cross your path each day? You resolve to not be a cheater, but is your mind a runaway train? Do you use people in your imagination? You think cheating is wrong. Do you put yourself in compromising situations? Are you willing to do what it takes so that it doesn't happen, so that even your thought life is brought under God's control? Will you do what it takes? See, Jesus is getting at our actions. He's getting at our thoughts, and he's getting at our motivations. Jesus is showing us with this issue of of lust how to attack our sin from multiple directions. And, And so one of the things Jesus does this morning is he reminds us that the battle for sexual integrity is one that takes place on multiple fronts. It is not a simple assault. Um, In essence, Jesus, as always, he's interested in seeing this deep integrity in the life and in the hearts and in the thoughts of Christians. He wants us to not just be people who don't commit adultery, strictly speaking, strictly understood. He wants us to be people who have integrity down to the heart level, where for us, adultery is unthinkable and sexual integrity is treasured. There's a lot. I could say there are a lot of ways you could go here. And so I'm very thankful that I have this commitment to having restrained outlines. It sort of forces me to focus on what Jesus is doing rather than going off the rails. And so when it comes to this outline, I hope you don't think I'm being too cute. If you look at the outline, you can probably see what the three points are. Um, I think what Jesus is doing here is he is attacking adultery at the root by means of what we maybe think of as the classic criminal trifecta of crime, motivation, and opportunity. Crime, motivation, and opportunity. Those are going to be our three points this morning. Three things Jesus addresses when it comes to adultery. Um, Before we start with the first point, I just want to say, though, Jesus is committed to Christians being holy people who embody Christian sexuality the way it was intended between two married people, one man and one woman, and no one else. So let's look at how he does this under these three points. Let's talk about crime. You see this, the act itself, the thing that he affirms in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, there's going to be a but after this. But the but is not to say, I don't believe in what I say in verse 27. He's affirming this, just like he affirmed, you shall not murder, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, no, that that commandment's not good. He says that commandment is good. It's a good command, but you only let it go as deep as your actions, and you need to see to, to reckon with what it means for your heart. And so this is the presenting symptom. Adultery is the presenting symptom that sits at the surface of your life if lust is out of control. But we have to appreciate this before we can appreciate how he goes deeper. And we'll talk about lust and what it is in the next point. 
But this command Jesus says his listeners have heard, of course, is the seventh commandment. It's do not commit adultery. It's the seventh commandment. It's in the ten, the big ten. Uh, you can see it in Exodus 20. Uh, maybe you got here today and you went, this text, we've all heard this before. We know this is, this is what the Bible says. It is the most cliche thing in the world for Christians to talk about sex. Well, you know, Jesus' readers heard this before too. And that's why he says, you've heard it said before. So Jesus is rehashing something they know. He's talking about things they've already heard before. Um, and so we should be very careful not to read this commandment as narrowly as I think the world wants to. Strictly speaking, we, we usually think of adultery as cheating on your spouse. We think of it as, as having an affair. And, of course, there are reasons why we should value and protect marriage. Um, it's beneficial to us that God has given us this command. Marriage is foundational to the stability of the family, which is foundational to the stability of society. This is a command that is protective of the most fundamental unit of civilization. And not only that, but marriage is worth protecting because it's an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church. When a husband is faithful to his wife and a wife is faithful to her husband, it is a picture of that beautiful union between Christ and his people. And when that relationship is marred, then the beauty of Christ is marred as well, at least in the world's eyes. See, it's a command that's bigger than just forbidding the act of physically cheating on someone. It is so much broader than that. It is a command that actually encompasses all biblically forbidden sexual acts. Now, I was going to read from our larger catechism this morning, and as I started to read it myself, even I blushed. I don't know if you have read what the catechism has to say, the larger catechism has to say about the seventh commandment. I will leave it to you. Uh, or, you know, but there are, there are things in there that I think that you can tackle in the pulpit, uh, even in a room full of children. And I'm going to say the word sex a lot today, so I'm not too bashful. Uh, but at the same time, there is there's some heavy stuff in the larger catechism. The Bible forbids an awful lot of things uh, when it comes to human sexuality. Um, but here's the reality, though. This is a command that is relevant whether you're married or single. This is a command that's relevant whether you have a husband, a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whether you are single. How is it relevant? It's relevant because God calls us to lives of sexual integrity. God sets the boundaries for sexual activity. Sex truly is a good thing. It is a blessing. It is a happy thing. We should make sure this is said up front. Um, if this whole sermon, all you hear is God says, don't do this. Or don't do that. And you think that's what the Bible says on the issue. I think I will have failed today. Because it is often said, you know, the Puritans were, uh, are portrayed sometimes as being restrained and reserved. Um, some people talk about them as though they were sexually repressed people. And the reality is very much the opposite. Um, they actually saw marital relations as such a good thing, such an important thing, that they brought people up on charges when they did not engage in marital relations with one another in church. Uh, not in church. <laughs> <laughs> the Puritans were that one. All right. <laughs> but there, you, you saw this in, uh, in, in, the, in the Reformation. 
One of the things that you see, um, I have a great book um, about John Calvin, and it's called Calvin's Company of Pastors. And in Geneva, there's an episode where they bring a man up on charges because he's not engaging in, re in sexual relations with his wife. And they tell him, you have a duty to do this. This is a good thing. This is part of your marriage. And they bring the man up on charges because of it. Now, why this happened, I have no idea. But the thing I want you to see is that the church took it seriously, that the church saw that it was a good thing. They saw that it was actually important. And so don't think of them as being repressed people who are trying to hold people back from enjoying their time together as married people. So the Bible is driving us toward seeing the physical union of husband and wife as a good thing. It exists before the fall. Adam and Eve are doing this before the fall happens. He creates them to be together as husband and wife before the fruit is taken, before the fall takes place. And so what we need is to not despise the idea of sex. What we must despise is its misuse and its abuse. So we rejoice in it within the boundaries, and we're meant never to follow it outside the boundaries God has set. I know boundaries are not popular today, but boundaries are good. A car on a mountain road is grateful for guardrails. Uh, a train without tracks is not a blessing. It is a disaster. Uh, and I have done enough hiking since I moved here to really appreciate the fact that there are walking paths showing me where to go. And I know eventually if I stick to these walking paths, it's going to take me somewhere that looks like civilization, at least usually. Now, God gives the boundaries in this area, doesn't he? And so it makes sense that if God made this thing for us, that he would tell us how it's to be used, how it's to be a blessing for us. What are the boundaries God has given to us? Now, normally I wouldn't have to say this, but this is the year 2021. So I do have to say this. What does the Bible tell us? about sex. The Bible tells us that sex is something that is for those who are married and marriage as naturally and biblically defined between one man and one woman. Not more than one man, not more than one woman, not one man and one man, not one woman and one woman. Uh, no invention here. For a hundred percent of human history, nothing I just said would have been seen as controversial. Now, that doesn't mean people practiced it. That doesn't mean they were consistent, but it would not have been controversial. People knew the target they were supposed to aim at, right? So you had deviations from God's standard. And we know this, that if there are deviations from God's standard, just because they're legal, just because they're socially approved, does not mean that suddenly it becomes inside of God's boundary or that it's legitimate in God's eyes. Um, outside the boundaries of marriage, sex is not a good. It is not a blessing. It is not something that's going to be flourishing or joy. And that's because God has set those boundaries. Everything outside the boundaries God is, is given is what Jesus is talking about here. It is encompassed in this one word, adultery. Again, I would say you look at uh, the larger catechism, question 139. You can read all about some of those um, details of what that might be. But I want to highlight something here. This is a command that is relevant to those who are married and it is also relevant to those of you who are not married. So I do not want you to sit here and go, oh, wait, I'm not married. I'm incapable of committing adultery. No, no, no. That's actually not true. Uh, I want to say a word to those of you who are single. Jesus does mention that there are some who are naturally gifted 
for singleness. There are some people who find singleness satisfying. They do not struggle with desire for physical intimacy. Um, Paul tells us in one of his letters that he was like this. Paul says he was gifted for singleness. And he actually says, look, I wish everyone could be like me. I wish everyone could be single and be happy being single. And he gives his reasons. He says, look, married people have a lot on their plate. They have things they have to worry about. They have someone else that they have to dedicate their life to. And that becomes a distraction from some of the things, especially that Paul is working through. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 7, where he talks about singleness. But Paul also says something else. He says, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. So in other words, marriage is God's prescription for you if you are someone who has that desire. You know you're not gifted with singleness, with the gift of singleness, if you feel that desire. is one of the things that Paul is telling us. So I would simply say that if that is you and you are single... You should be seeking and anticipating finding a husband or a wife in God's timing. And I would want you to know that God does have an answer for your desire. God does not intend in the meantime for you to engage in brief dalliances or to just have a life that's peppered with what you tolerate as little sins or indulgences in the meantime. That is not God's plan for you. One problem that we have is we have a generation of young people who are sort of intentionally delaying marriage until much later than they used to. There are a lot of complicated reasons why this happens. A lot of them are financial. Um, There's sort of a myth out there that you must be financially secure before you get married. I call it a myth because I don't believe it. Um, I know enough exceptions to this rule. We should just dispel it. We should just be rid of it altogether. Uh, Aaron and I are an exception to this. We married at the age of 19. And we were broke. We were broke, broke. Um, we uh, had an apartment that we rented from the college for $200 a month. It was, can you imagine anything? Two hundred, Even a cardboard box under the overpass is 200 a month right now. Um, and uh, it, it was a rat hole. Now, it wasn't literally a rat hole, but it was a bug hole because the front door didn't, it closed. But there was like nothing under the door to keep insects from coming in. And so we had bugs in our house all the time that were constantly killing. And if you turn on the lights, the mosquitoes would just come under the door. Um, we lived on Hamburger Helper for the first two years of our marriage. And even after that, we were, we were still broke. Uh, we eventually stopped eating Hamburger Helper because we got sick of it. But we were broke, but we were broke together. So my encouragement is this. Don't wait for financial stability. You may be waiting forever. If you wait for financial stability, if you're going to be broke, just be broke together. That is my marriage advice for today. Marry in the Lord and be broke together. It's great. Um, It's better than being broke and burning. Um, It's certainly better than that. But I, I do believe if young people were convinced, if people were convinced that marriage was meant to be the place where physical intimacy is enjoyed, they would be more motivated to get married in the first place. Uh... And so that's why I think on the one hand, yes, Christians are very well known for their stances on on sex. At the same time, I I wonder if the message actually gets through. 
because um, there are some people, they say, look, someday I'll be committed, I'll be economically, emotionally, spiritually tied to someone, but until that day, I'll sort of split my body off from my soul, and I'll just do these things until I can get married, right? They sort of detach themselves and say, this is just a biological function, like when I use the restroom, or they think of it in terms of just strictly biological need. But to think that way is to buy into the lie, right? It isn't just a physical function. It's not that cheap. It's too powerful because it it affects our soul like all things do when they're used in a way that God didn't design it. I think our current generation is not motivated to marry because for many they've decided that they can indulge without marriage and they can find a way psychologically not to feel guilty about it. And Christians of all people should be eager to marry if they burn. And I think most do. I think most do. Um, If you are single and you burn, God has given you direction. You should be seeking a spouse. Now, that's not all that marriage is. Marriage is not just a physical function at all. But it is a powerful, the desire for sexual union is a powerful function uniting you to your spouse And that's something that marriage does perform. It is a motivator that brings men and women together into marriage. So that's the first thing Jesus does. He addresses this sort of base level of the command. He says, do not commit adultery. But then he goes further. And our second point this morning is motivation, right? We've talked about the crime. What does he say don't do? But then he gets the motivation. Remember, he goes deeper than just that. He says, when you get to verse 28, Jesus follows up this affirmation uh, of the seventh commandment. And he, he follows it up with something even more profound. He says, even adulterous thoughts are a problem. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus takes this deeper, right? This is where we start to see that the modern world has too low a view of sex. Uh, we start to realize that it runs through the heart and the soul. You see Jesus saying that adultery is bigger than just actively cheating on someone. If you haven't got an area, a whole handle on this area of your life, a rot will start to set in that wrecks the various parts of your life, how you think, how you live, and how you see everything else. And one of the things that you see in the text here is that adultery happens long before any actual act takes place. Because Jesus broadens it to even the motions of the heart. What do you want? What do you desire? What do you think upon? The problem isn't that people keep cheating on their spouses, ultimately says Jesus. The problem is that they even think about it in the first place. One of the things that the the catechism does is it lays out all of these things that are required in the larger in, in, in this command. And we'll, just among this, it requires a chastity of mind, body, affections, words, and behavior, the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty and apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of singleness. Conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness and resisting temptations thereunto. There's more, but I stop. Much of the catechism question is drawn from what Jesus says here. 
When Jesus talks about our heart and our thoughts and the things we meditate upon, the catechism is reflecting that. Here are four items I want you to notice right here in this text. First, Jesus says it starts with a look. Uh, notice that he says, everyone who looks at a woman. By the way, I don't think I need to say this, but this goes for looking at a man too. This is not a one-sided command. This is applicable whether you're a man or a woman. But what you see already with Jesus here is that what we do with our eyes matters. Because our eyes have a way of directing how we think and what we meditate upon. In the next chapter of Matthew, Jesus is going to say this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. It's talking about how your eye directs who you are. What you see impacts how you feel and what you do. In the book of Job, Job is giving this speech about this virtuous life that he lives. It's not that he's bragging, it's that he's being accused of being a secretly sinful man. And so he responds to these accusations of these people by saying, I'm not. In, in Job 31, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Uh, you have this biblical idea that what we do with our eyes matters, where we direct our eyes matters. And, and I say this to a generation that now fills our eyes with screens. What are you using your eyes for? Do you use the eyes that God gave you to honor him and increase your love of him? Or is his gift to you? Is this gift of sight being used in a way that is harmful to your soul? So first it starts with a look. Second, notice how he mentions lust as part of the look. Um, I, maybe it needs to be said, maybe it doesn't need to be said, but looking at another person is not a sin, strictly speaking. The look at the other person is not the problem, but perhaps the second look is. Even sexual desire is not sinful, right? Adam and Eve experienced that before the fall. It is lustful desire that's sinful. What is lust? You know, I saw after a really good definition of, of lust, it was actually really difficult. Definitely don't look at like secular dictionaries. They actually aren't going to do a very good job of helping you with that. Um, J, uh, John Piper actually has a wonderful definition of lust. I think it's fantastic. He shows how he draws this from the text of scripture, and I think he makes the case. I'm not going to go through all of that, but I want to give you his definition of lust. He says, lust means sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. I think that's good. I think that's a good definition of lust. Lust it means sexual desire that dishonors its object and disregards God. Lust depersonalizes a person and forgets the creator. Um, it's a sin against the person. It's a sin against the creator. Uh, lust shoves those concerns aside. It barrels ahead. Um, C.S. Lewis has this passage in one of, his, uh, one of his books, and I can't remember where it is, so I can't cite it, but it's always stuck with me. Uh, Lewis said that someone who lusts says things like, if only I could get a woman, if only I could find a man. And he says, but what they really want isn't a person at all. They want an apparatus. They want an apparatus. They want someone to use, someone to have, but certainly not a person. Certainly not a, someone with thoughts and ideas and a soul and spiritual concerns in their own lives and their own struggles. That's not the kind of person that somebody wants when they're thinking lustfully 
Jesus says lustful intention is sin. It strips that person of their humanity. It says, I don't care what happens to you because of this. Then third, Jesus goes even deeper. He says someone who looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. See, Jesus goes deeper. Here's where the heart of it all starts to emerge. Um, Proverbs 23, 7 in the NASB makes this profound statement. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. The heart is central to the whole of who we are. This is why Jesus cares so much about what happens within our heart. Why he would rather talk about the heart first. Because it guides our whole person. It guides and drives everything we do. It is for all intents and purposes who we are. So you have all three of these statements by Jesus and it all starts to come together. I think, doesn't it, right? Temptation and sin are really battled at the level of our heart. It relates to our affections. It relates to what we are dedicated to do. So we really should hate sin. Paul says in Romans 7 that sin is something he did not want to do. This is a man who knew what it was to hate his sin. But I want to caution you that that hatred of sin is not enough. We cannot hate sin enough to tame it. We can't hate sin enough to end it. Not with hatred alone. We can't drive sin out of our lives by hating it into submission. Because ultimately, sin is about love. Sin is about love. What do you love and who do you love? Every sin is, in a sense, a declaration of independence from God, and it is a declaration of self-love. Sin is self-oriented love. So when we sin, when we desire sin, we are really loving ourselves and we are dishonoring and hating God. And And it's Adam and Eve in the garden all over again. What do they do in the garden? They accuse God of actually being the selfish one. They think, I'm the one this is really about. See, the problem is when it comes to sin, you cannot hate that sin enough to make it wither away and die. Sin does not die from hatred. You can't hate sin into submission. And that is because sin is ultimately not about hate. Sin is about love. John Owen famously said that our sin should always lie bleeding under our knives. We're in mortal combat with our sin. But we don't watch sin die under our knives simply by hating it. We must defeat lust with a greater love. One of the ways to remove a fire from a building is to remove the oxygen. Right? We, we starve out the oxygen, but there has to be something that goes in its place. We need, we need health. We have to starve it out by sending our love to another. And that greater love is a love for God. And if we're married, our spouse as well. So the goal isn't, man, I hate adultery. Man, I hate lust. Man, I hate, fill it the blank. Maybe lust isn't your issue, but you've got something else that's really burdening you. The goal isn't, man, I really hate this sin. The goal is, I love you, Lord. Set my heart on you so that I love you. Thank you for the forgiveness that I have in Christ. There is no fear here because I am secure in you. Now that I can love you without fear, O God, now that I don't have to be afraid of your judgment, let me love and worship you without any impediment now. I don't want my sin 
or my enjoyment of, uh, to be, uh, of you to be impeded because I love sin. Instead, I want to love you, O oh God. Make me someone who loves you. So there's this biblical principle that, that we become like what we worship. The goal is for us to become like God. We become like God by loving God. We don't battle sin well if all we do is hate it. That will eventually burn itself out. We should hate sin, but hate will not strike the killing blow to sin in our life. We have to direct ourselves always toward a love for God and not merely wishing that this sin would be out of our lives. That is not enough. The target we are aiming at is not to only run from sin, but it is to run toward the Lord, our maker, who has a better way and a better life for us. So when our, when our life is oriented toward God, here's what happens. When sinful thoughts arise, we're able to respond in a lot of ways. But with this approach, we say, this is going to stifle my love for God. I was made to love God. I was made to be like God. And we make Christ's likeness in virtue our goal, not just acting rightly. So we, in other words, we're cultivating virtue in our souls and asking God to help us love the beautiful rather than to hate the ugly. Jesus wants our motivations to be good. He wants our eyes to be good, not just our behaviors. This is the second point. The first was crime. The second is motivation. He's getting at why we want to do this in the first place. But third this morning, Jesus moves from the realm of the heart to this very practical conclusion. He's addressed the crime. He's addressed the motivation of the heart. But then at the end of this exhortation, he, he addresses the idea of opportunity. He says something fairly radical in verses 29 to 30. I'm going to read it, even though we've already read it. I'm going to read it one more time. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. There have been some fairly radical responses to this verse in church history. It was said that the church father Origen took this passage quite literally and as a result was incapable of bearing children. Uh, I hope none of you take this away as the message of the text. Please don't. What is Jesus doing? He's using exaggerated language and he's saying that sin is deadly serious and, and we should even be seen as extreme in how we respond to sin as it arises in our own heart. Think about what Jesus uses to illustrate this. He uses the removal of the hand to illustrate what we would be willing to give up in order to see sin go away. Then he uses the example of the eye, removal of the eye. In an agrarian society, the hand was your way of making a living. Without a hand, you were basically worthless. It was your means of employment. It was your whole livelihood. And Jesus puts this demand before you. Are you dedicated to seeing sin go? Are you willing to see, to say as Luther did in another context, like goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, in order to see your sin put down? How dedicated are you? Do you want to be free? If you want to put it gently, what Jesus is doing here, he is at once telling us that sin is really bad and we should be willing to go to extreme things to see it go away. 
And he's saying that we should do things practically in our lives to make that sin difficult. Um, the word, word I use for this is friction. This isn't a Bible term, and I don't think I heard it from another preacher, so I'm always nervous to say things other preachers haven't already said. But this is something I've, I've used in counseling before to talk about this. Um, but the idea is that sin may still happen, it may come up in our hearts, but we can do what we can to make it difficult to follow through on sin. Temptations suddenly become more difficult. Um, physically speaking, friction is a principle in physics. That when two objects make elements make contact, their movement is relative to each other. Uh, what that really means is that it's hard to roll a ball. Uh, it's easy to roll a ball across a hardwood floor because there's very little friction, but it's hard to roll a ball very far across a shag carpet, for example. Um, it is really difficult to shoot pool in a sandbox. Right? Part of the reason is because of friction. Friction makes things resistant. It makes things difficult. Uh, and when we want something to move slowly, when we want something to be difficult, one of the ways we do that is we introduce friction. Jesus is not opposed to taking practical steps in the Christian life so that sin is difficult. Jesus is not opposed to introducing friction into the Christian life when it comes to sin. Sin should be hard to commit. You see it here in the text. We should be willing to do whatever is necessary to see it gone from our lives, even if it means saying goodbye to something we used to love or saying goodbye to something that we enjoy if it leads us in the way of temptation. This isn't enough, of course. This is not enough. Um, even with a missing eye, someone can have greedy thoughts, right? Even with a right hand missing, someone can still hate his brother in his heart. Um, that's why I think friction is the right word. Because on its own, here's the deal. Spiritual friction can't stop sin. It can only make it more difficult. If we're determined, we will still do it. But Jesus is making this exaggeration to make a point. Is there anything in your life that you would rather hold on to that have victory over sin? Is there anything that you enjoy that is more valuable to you than God and his call to holiness? What are the avenues that sin travels in your life? I'm not even just talking about adultery. I'm not even just talking about lust in this context. Are there sins? Are there temptations that are, seem to arise whenever you're in a certain situation or around a certain person or group of people? Jesus challenges us here, I believe. Is this situation, is this person worth it? Is that device, is that service that you enjoy worth it? Might it be that God wants you to introduce friction into your life so that sin is harder to commit and temptations become less frequent? What can you do to make sin difficult? What are you willing to do? Who are you willing to involve? Are you willing to cut off a problematic relationship? Are you willing to get rid of your home internet and buy an old school flip phone if necessary? I know that is like cutting your hand off in 2021. Are you willing to do it? Mm -hmm. Whatever sin you're dealing with, Jesus says, will you cut off your hand? Will you gouge out your eye? Do you love God more than these? Will you follow Christ as his disciple? Will you love him more than these other things? That's the challenge. Before I say any more, let me mention one thing that I just, I really feel like I have to say, and I hope it doesn't seem glib, but it isn't. I talked to a room full of people 
there is no way you're not talking to people who haven't failed in this area. Um, if you failed at this command, don't despair. In just a few minutes, we're going to offer a confession of sin. And you know the confession of sin is going to be followed by something that is unspeakably precious. It is the declaration of pardon. It's the assurance of pardon. And that assurance of pardon is an encapsulation of the gospel. That even we can walk free and full of joy, even though we really have sinned. We really have sinned. It's not imaginary that we sin. That God could look at you and say to you, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. It is stunning. And if you come in here today aware of your failures, then you have also come into this place aware of your need. We have failed. We are sinners. Sin does not disqualify us from following Christ. Refusing to bring that sin to Him does. All of us have in some way have failed to follow Jesus fully. We are meant to walk in forgiveness. We're meant to walk in repentance. We're meant to look at Jesus always. There is peace there. There's real pardon. And there is real freedom there. There's no talk about doing battle with sin apart from forgiveness. You cannot subdue an unforgiven sin. If I have somehow made it sound like freedom from sin is all about you, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, then I failed this morning. We do not just add Christ on at the last minute as a technicality. Oh, he's at the end of the sermon. He needs to mention Jesus. This is his pattern. Yes, it is my pattern. Christ is at the center of God's entire answer to the problem of adultery as Jesus is speaking of it here. You come to Jesus. You confess your sin. You look to Christ. And here's what he does. He pronounces you forgiven. He sends his spirit to help you and to carry you and to empower you to live these things out so that you see marriage as this beautiful, powerful, mysterious union that we ought to embrace as God's plan for us if we're not gifted for singleness. And to see that single-mindedly loving our spouse is God's will for each and every married person. You are not alone in the battle. You have the church you have brothers and sisters in the Lord. You have elders in this church who care about you. And most importantly of all, you have Christ's spirit and you have Christ's word. You are not alone in any of your struggles with sin. He promises us, I will never leave you or forsake you. We walk, we fall, we get up. That's the Christian life. At rock bottom, here's the reality. Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount, what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple. We are not meant to be disciples, only skin deep. Instead, Jesus says, disciples will give up any comfort if it is destroying us. We will give up lucrative opportunities if it is harming our souls. We will do whatever we can to follow him regardless of the cost because Jesus is worth it. Why should we do this? I could give you a few reasons, but I want to mention two. Here's one. You will have joy when you have lust out of your life. Lust robs us of joy, and righteousness enriches our capacity for gladness. Uh, I have a rule that I've broken once already, and I'm going to break it again, not to mention Lord of the Rings. Just, just the more you preach, the more you're like, man, Lord of the Rings is really good for illustrations, though. So here you go. 
At one point near the end of Lord of the Rings, Sam is trying to encourage Frodo. He's carrying the ring. It's destroying him. This ring is wrecking him. You can just see him. He's slipping. He's becoming a darkened, unhappy figure. And Sam says to Frodo, he's trying to cheer him up. He says, do you remember the taste of strawberries? And Frodo says, no, Sam, I can't recall the taste of food, nor the sound of water, nor the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark with nothing, no veil between me and the wheel of fire. And so Sam responds to him. He says, then let us be rid of it once and for all. If this is a picture of a soul so sunken down in something that he wants and hates all at the same time, I think that's what this is. This is a picture of that. To be rid of it, to be rid of it, it's to know joy. So let me suggest this to you, that to be rid of sin is to have God, and to have God is to have joy and to know joy. That's the first reason, you'll know joy. The second reason to give up lust and see it gone is this, Jesus gave up more. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, says Charles Wesley. Whatever you're being asked to give, he gave more. Paul says it differently. He says, though he was equal to God, he set, it, he set that right aside and he became a man. He experienced pain. He experienced hurt. He experienced vulnerability and, and abandonment. He experienced weakness. He experienced poverty. He had nowhere, nowhere to lay his head. He experienced the ultimate price of death and rejection. What is a hand in the face of that? What's an eye in the light of what Christ gave? It's nothing. It's a blip. What is a job opportunity or a toxic relationship or a device in light of eternity? These things are nothing. Jesus gave up more and he did it to secure your pardon. But he did it to bring you forgiveness. But he also did it so that you could walk free. And so that you could know what it is to say no to sin. And to know victory in this life. And so that you could have God and so have joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you love us too much to leave us fast bound in sin and nature's night. You want us to walk free and you want us to know victory. Would you give that to your people today? Would you give us chaste hearts that, that we love the good and the beautiful? Make us treasure what is lovely and not what will destroy us. Give us Christ and give us a love for you. We ask it in Jesus' name.